You're listening to The Healthy Church, a series preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Galatians chapter 1 this morning. Let me just say to you this morning as we begin, we're, we're right in the middle of a series we just actually started a couple weeks ago about a healthy church. We'll be there again this morning. But we have been entertained to death this week. Let me give you the numbers. 35 hours are spent in the last week on average on television. 24 hours on the computer. 15 hours on our cell phones. And 17 hours on social media. We've been entertained to death. And this morning, I offer no entertainment. If that's what you came from, I'm for, I'm sorry. But I offer something infinitely more satisfying. The word of the living God. And so our prayer this morning is that we will hear clearly the word of the living God. A healthy church, we talked about the church when we began the series. And again, I don't like to uh, promote Um, myself and go online and listen to the messages. You won't hear me say that hardly ever, but if you've missed the first two weeks, it's imperative that you go back and get caught up to where we're at. We said the church is glorious. It It was a mystery, something not revealed in the past, but now revealed through the word of God, the prophets of God, the apostles, this new humanity that God would take, no more Jew and Gentile, no more separation, but together this new humanity in Jesus Christ. And the church displays the manifold wisdom of God, that God says to angelic beings, do you want to see how wise I am? Look at what I'm doing in my church. It's an amazing thing. And the church has been made his by his own blood. And that's who we are. We said last week, we're going to steal the phrase from the raptors, we the church. Not the building, but the people of God. The church is made up of those who are saved by the blood of Christ, who have been baptized following him in obedience and identification, who are living together in a commitment toward one another, and throughout their life, learning to love each other. That's the church. So, Uh, There are seven, I think, marks that we'll talk about of a healthy church. We hit the first one last week, which was expository preaching, meaning that we let the text order the sermon, and that then guides our application. We don't pick and choose. We don't pull out. There is a time for topical preaching, but the church should be known for looking at the Bible, opening the Word, and telling God's people what it means. Expound it. Preach it. Declare it. The church grows in life and vitality as they organize their lives around the word. And I love what we said last week. Spurgeon said, in every small town, village, and hamlet in England, there is a road to London. And in every text of scripture, there is a road to Jesus Christ. He, it's his story from cover to cover. And the church will look like him as it listens and it follows. So, that was expository preaching. We want to be a church that expounds the word. But the second mark that we'll talk about this morning is this. A healthy church is a church 
that is gospel-centered. Gospel-centered. Let me read a, actually a definition from William Tyndale. William Tyndale was the first translator to translate the English Bible using, drawing directly actually from the Hebrew and Greek text. And for his efforts of translating the Bible into the common language of his people, English, he was rewarded by being tied to a stake, strangled to death, and burned alive in 1536. And here's what he says about the gospel. Euangelion is a Greek word. That's the word gospel. You would be familiar with that with evangel, evangelistic. That's the Greek word. Euangelion is a Greek word. A signifying good. Merry, glad, joyful news. That, now catch this, from Tyndale. That makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. The gospel. I believe this morning that our understanding of the gospel as individuals will make us sing, dance, and leap for joy. And some of you are thinking right now, oh no, are you asking people to, to sign up for the interpretive dance praise team? Uh, no. Not yet. But there ought to be something in the proclamation of the gospel for God's people that makes my heart sing. That stirs me, that moves me, that no matter how many times I have heard this message, there is something about its proclamation that drives deep into my heart and I understand what it is, what it means, and it fills me with tremendous joy. Happiness, gladness, um, dancing, right? That's, that's really lame, I know, but that's the best I've got this morning. And that good news in the church of Jesus Christ, when it is gospel-centered, will drastically change the culture of the church. And that's the direction we're heading this morning. My prayer this morning is simply this that we as God's people will understand the gospel. It will make our hearts sing, not just today, but every day. As we hear it, as we preach it to ourselves, as we're reminded of it. And that this gospel would so change the culture of our church that we are a church that is truly gospel-centered. Galatians chapter 1 this morning, we'll look at verses 1 through 12. We will start here, and Lord willing, we will finish in chapter 2. But let me remind you this morning, before we begin Galatians 1, to give you the context of where we're at. Paul is writing to wayward believers. There are people in the church who are drifting from the faith. And there are reasons why people do drift from the faith. Sometimes people drift from the faith because of soul trouble. Something happens in life that is hard and, and drastic and dramatic, and, they, and they, they're, they're surprised or shocked by their suffering. Let me just say this to you, believer in Christ. It's not whether you will suffer in this broken world. 
but when you will suffer. We should not be surprised by that. And it happens, and sometimes when it happens and we're not prepared with it, our theology is wrong about suffering, we drift. And there's also the reason of twisted truth. That someone comes along and says, yeah, I know you got the gospel, but let me add something to that. And it sounds good, and it sounds attractive, and it sounds like you can check off all those boxes. But what happens is, when you believe that you are deserting the gospel, you are deserting God's grace, and if you stay in that trajectory, you will ultimately desert God himself. It's a tragedy. The believers in the church here had moved from gospel triumph to heart-rending tragedy. And Paul's concerned about it. And, and you know, if you know Galatians, he says some things in verses 6 through 12 that are really harsh. But let, let's notice now first, with this in mind, writing to wayward believers, how he addresses them at the beginning of this epistle. Verse number 1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that, we, that he might deliver us out of this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And before even Paul starts with these wayward believers, he reminds them of the amen. Amen to all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We cannot move away from that. And so he says, grace to you. The message of grace, as far as Paul was concerned, with these wayward believers was, grace still stands. It still stands. The fountain of grace still flows. And before he launches into the problem of leaving the gospel, he says to these wayward believers, grace to you. Do you know, do you remember what Christ has done for you? So let me say this. If you're here this morning and you are wandering or you have wandered and you've moved away, let me say to you, grace. Grace. Come home. Come home. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I said. You don't even know what I think right now. It doesn't matter. Grace to you. Come home. Come home. Well, what would the church do when the prodigal comes home? A good church would rejoice and kill the fatted calf. And I could use some beef right about now. And for those of you who are here, Stay home. Stay, stay home. G.K. Chesterton said, there are two ways to get home, and one is to stay there. The world has nothing for you. I've been at this for almost 30 years. I can write a book on heartbreak. It has nothing for you. And it promises the world. It never delivers. And when it's done with you, it will chew you up and spit you out and leave you to die. It's the nature of sin. So he says, come home. That's how he starts. But now, Paul understands the importance of the gospel, and he is adamant 
about defending it. Look what he says in verse number 6. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ onto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Literally, devoted to destruction. This is serious for Paul. He's not proclaiming, be healthy, wealthy, and wise. He's telling you this gospel is important, and anyone who preaches anything other than this, himself included, let him be accursed. Strong language. We will become accustomed to that as we continue to listen to Paul later on in the message. He goes in verse 9, As we've said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Important. Paul says that there is only one gospel. And just that you know this, we need to understand this. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ has nothing to say. Nothing. Nothing that cannot be said by some other human agency. It's the gospel. It alone has the power to save. He goes on to say that it was given by Christ, not made by men. And when you think, and as we go through the gospel today, you will understand that this is a gospel that no one would make up. Nobody. Because we all have ideas on how to be good and how to find God's blessings in our life. This gospel blows all of that out of the water. All of it. It's not from man or made up by man. It came from Christ. And then he says that anyone who preaches something different than this gospel, let them be devoted to destruction, accursed. So, if this is the only gospel if it was given by Christ, if preaching any other thing means that you should be devoted to destruction, then by all means, we better know what this gospel is. It, it's really important. And so, let's see what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also we are saved. If we keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Now, let's, here's, here's what he's going to lay it out for us. Four, I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sin according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. Now, listen to me. And this is really important. If the gospel is the good news, that which brings joy to our heart, that which, when I hear it, it makes me sing and dance and leap for joy, then I come across 1 Corinthians and Paul says, hey, I can sum this all up in three sentences. Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again according to the scriptures. How in the world can that Truth, then, 
Fill me with joy. The truth is, it sounds kind of depressing at first. Death, burial, and even resurrection, great, cool, so what does that mean to me? And I hope this morning to answer that, because there are some things that we need to know in order for the truth of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to make our hearts leap and sing. Four things you need to know. Number one, there's a God to whom we are accountable. Help me with this. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Notice what it did not say. In the beginning, Rick. Or Kim. Or I won't call your name, but your name in there as well. In the beginning, God. Period. He is the center of everything. He is everything. So we we have to start there. In the beginning, God. Not us. You and I did not speak a world into existence from nothing. And if you think you can, try it. But you got to start from scratch with nothing. God did. We are not autonomous this morning. We are not self-made, self-reliant, or self-accountable. There is a God in heaven. He created the world and everything in it. And listen to me. Everything that we enjoy and experience, it sprang from his mind. He's not a force or some impersonal being. He is the God, the creator of the world. He's a creator. And as created people, we are owned by God. It is our obligation to honor, to live, to speak, and think in a way that recognizes and acknowledges his authority over us. Right? God created this world, and God created you and me for a purpose. For a purpose. Can I tell you something? In this world today, everyone is looking for a purpose. Honestly, that's why people are marching outside of industries that kill chickens, actually. Just heard that the other day. Place, I think, in Toronto, they, they go through 100,000. And don't start, I don't want to talk about chickens today, all right? Um, I love chickens. They're delicious. I, I do love them. But they're, they're protesting. I think they make McNuggets or something out of their McDonald's. They're protesting that. And they do that. Or they want to save a whale or save a seal. And again, I'm not for abusive nature. I'm just saying that everybody knows there's something I ought to be doing. We were created with purpose. And God, it sprang from his mind, he created you, he created me, listen to this, to be holy like him. To be just and loving and kind. How are we doing with that? Right? We're accountable to him. So the first thing we need to understand with this gospel is that you and I are not God. There is a God. We are accountable to him. Here's the second thing we ought to understand and acknowledge this morning, that we have rebelled against this God. We have rebelled. We are nothing like him. Let's quit pretending this morning that we're holy, righteous, and just. We are not. And 
if we could this morning, and I would hate to do this, if we could have a screen of our life this week that, that would display our thoughts in our hearts and our minds, let alone the things we said and did, right? Someone saw you flipping out in Tim Horton's line because the drive-thru's going closed, closed it's, it's slow, and you're screaming and yelling. That's one thing. But what if we could peer into your heart this morning from last week of everything that happened in here and in here? I venture to say that no one would be here this morning. If that's the way the service is going, I'm out, myself included. We are nothing like him. The truth is, we have repudiated God's rule, his care, his authority, his right to command those to whom he gave life, right? I was trying to think about this this week, to, to try to even to comprehend what this looks like for a creator, an all-powerful, loving, kind creator, to have his creation just completely rebel and say, you're not God, I'm God, I will do whatever I want to do. And I was really racking my brain around this, and I thought about this, and this is really lame, so it, it, does, it, it doesn't follow all the way through. But some of you folks will realize this. If you're raising your kids, right, and, and they're just not doing anything you want them to do, I don't know about your kids, but my kids were like that. They were rebels, right? And I heard this statement. A guy said, and he was joking, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of this world, right? No, I'm not condoning that this morning. Don't misunderstand what I just said. But I think we get a glimpse of frustration. That's like, wait a minute, kid. I gave you life. I know what's best for you. I have a plan and purpose that would blow your mind if you knew about it. And how dare you act at three years old or 15 years old or 24 and a half before your mind is even fully formed that you know better, right? That just scratches the surface. Because it's not like we're, uh, my kids were born. It's like this is the sovereign king of the universe who created a piece of dirt, a lump of clay, who shouts out and says, you will not rule over me. I will not acknowledge you as king. I am my own king. I am my own sovereign, and I will do what I want. I will put myself upon the throne. And that's what each and every one of us do, and that's every sin that we commit is related to self. We lie, we steal, we cheat, we lust, we fornicate, we're unkind, we're full of pride and arrogancy. Why? Because of self. Self has put on the tr throne, and what we have done is we have committed cosmic treason against the eternal God of the universe. And we're all guilty. We're, we're, from the pope to the pastor to the pew to the something else with a P, right? It goes, it doesn't, we're guilty. And the irony of this self-rebellion and our sin is that in our rebellion and our sin, in all that we do and run from him, in all of that, we ruin everything. Everything. In our sinfulness, in our rebellion against this creator, we 
ruin everything. Listen to the words of this great prophet of the past, Bob Dylan. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates. Broken dishes, broken parts, streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken, everything is broken. Is that not our world today? Everything is broken, and it's broken because of rebellion against God, that we will be our own God, that we shout in the face of the sovereign king as finite, weak individuals who will die, who can't even stop the common cold, and yet we will reign, and we break and ruin everything. Our willful self-denial of God is a mega offense. We have sinned against a personal, holy, almighty king. We hate light. We love darkness. Our whole approach to life is to sin and fake our happiness. The stupid plastic smiles all around us are fake. They're not lasting. They cannot last. It's the story of humanity. We refuse to be honest, and we cling to our self-created falsehoods. We're guilty and condemned before God, all of us. See, and here's the problem, right? Wait a minute, singing, dancing, rejoicing, this is really bad news. I mean, this is terrible news because the Bible tells us that this God will not leave the guilty unpunished. This explodes 90% of what people think about God. We think that God is like that lazy janitor in the office that every morning we come in, all the dirt's been swept under the rug, right? Doesn't dust anything, sort of just leaves everything where it's at. Well, if that's your God, he becomes a God who simply hides from sin or hides sin. He becomes a coward who will not confront or destroy. And for some of you, that's okay. Oh, God, he'll just forgive. God is good. God is kind. And it's not a problem for me. He will excuse my sin. He'll just hide it under the rug. And that might be okay. And you might not want justice until evil is committed against you or someone you love. And then we cry out, they need to be punished. They need justice. God, punish the terrorist but let me off the hook. Nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. But that's not a good God. A good God who knows that sin will destroy everything must deal with sin. He must put it in a place forever to be contained and dealt with. And this God will. If you rebel against the sovereign king, he will sovereignly condemn you to eternal death. It's terrible news. It's terrible news. And the truth is this news should shake us to our core. This morning I'm here to tell you, my friend, you are not okay. It's not, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. No, we're all in trouble. All of us are in trouble. And the fact of the matter is that if God so pleased, he could have said, you want your will, you want your way, you want to be the king of your own universe, so be it, your will be done. And left the race in despair, misery, 
and eventually eternal hell. But here's the third thing you need to know. Not only is there a God to whom we're accountable, and we've rebelled against this sovereign king, but God in his love and mercy, his kindness, his grace, provided a way that justice could be met. And it came in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A Savior was born to save his people from their sin. And the writer in Isaiah, the prophet, gets it right. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, it tells us that I should have died, not Jesus. I should have been punished, not Jesus. He took my place. He goes on to say that my transgressions, my broken trust, my lies, my deceits, were his wounds. My iniquity, my crooked behavior with God and everyone else, it was his chastisement. My sin, my missing the mark of perfection was his sorrow. His punishment, though, brought me peace. His stripes, my healing. His grief, my joy. His death, my life. You must see the cross as something done by you. Your sin, my sin, and at the same time, for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can you almost hear now a melody playing? I think I hear a little music now. I think the, the sad drudgery, I, I, I hear something. I hear singing. I hear dancing. I hear joy. Why? Because a Savior was provided. A Savior. How do we include ourselves in the salvation? It is through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, whosoever, that term is really broad. Do you know what whosoever means? Whosoever. Whosoever. That means your name, my name, put it in there. For whosoever. God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish, the son, believes in the son, should not perish, but have everlasting life. As broad as the whosoever is, there's a narrow part in here. Perish and eternal life. Jesus reminds us that there are only two alternatives. There is eternal life, there is eternal death. And we respond by repenting and believing. It means I am fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what happens for the person who does this, they are translated from the guilt and the condemnation of death, translated into right now possessing eternal life. Not through your works, not through my works, not through a church, not through religion, but by the finished work of Jesus Christ. God's love is breathtaking. And we understand now the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and how it plays into our life and our story and our sin and our brokenness and our despair. I think you can be a little joyful about that. That's the doctrine on paper of the gospel of Christ. But there's more to it. This morning, if you don't know Christ, we want you to know him. Today is the day of salvation. 
Today is a day to repent and believe. Today, before you leave, you can go from a condemned criminal who committed high treason against the God in heaven to a son or daughter of the king. That's the best deal you'll ever get, man. The best deal you'll ever get. I was in an airport one time, and we were coming out from the gate, and some woman, was she had um, uh, some credit card. That if you, if you sign up right now, you get 30,000-something miles. And she said, that's the best deal you ever get. So I went over because I want 30,000 free miles. So well, the card costs blah, 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 blah. I said, that's a bad deal. <laughs> a bad deal, right? That's not the best deal. The best deal is that a sinner condemned to death can have their chains loosed and free. And know the love of the God and Father, fellowship with the Son, and spirit living within. But... The gospel is not just on paper, right, our doctrine, but it should be our practice and culture. And I submit to you this morning that the gospel in this story is not just for those who trust Christ as their Savior, it's for all of us. And when I know and understand and believe and receive and accept this gospel, it tells me there is a way to live. Not just that it saves me, but it shows me how to live. Back in our text in Galatians, just quickly, chapter 2. I won't spend lots of time there. These will be quick points, but I need to make them this morning. In chapter 2, you can go back and read it. Um, Paul is going to deal with a problem in the, church of Galatia, in the churches of Galatia where there was a gospel plus something else, and it was a problem. He, he already addressed that. But then... Peter had a problem, and now Paul is going to address Peter, the Apostle Peter. And, and, and just to sum it up, the problem was this. Peter understood that in Christ there is unity. No more Jew, no more Gentile, Scythian, bond or free, male or female, all one in Christ. And he was loving it. He was meeting with the Gentiles. They were having barbecued ribs, lobster. It was awesome. Awesome. It's like, this is great. And then some Jewish guys came who were still following the law and adding that, and they said, Peter, what are you doing? They're like, oh, 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 sorry, Gentiles, I hate this now, but I really can't fellowship with you. He leaves the Gentiles so bad that Barnabas follows after him, and Paul says, Peter, what are you doing? The gospel that you preach, you are not living in line with what it said. And look at this, it's important to see. Galatians chapter 2. Look, jump down to verse, let's see, uh, 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. Um, Paul says your behavior is a gospel problem. The way you're treating the church of Jesus Christ, Peter, this is a problem. You are not walking parallel with the Word of God, the gospel that you preach. And I think sometimes this is a disconnect with the church. We love the gospel. That's good. We need to live the gospel. And here's what happens. There are several things I want to quickly, and I mean quickly, don't get nervous. When the church of Jesus Christ is gospel-centered, when we know the story, love the story, delight in the story, when that's what we want for our life and we try to live it out, now here's what happens. Number one, the church becomes a place of undeserving love because that's the gospel. Listen to 1 John 4.11. Behold, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Here's the message of the gospel for the church. 
Good things happen to bad people. Good things, salvation, happen to bad people. And when the church is gracious and loves the gospel, it will tell the world that Jesus is the Holy One who forgives sinners, the King who befriends his enemies, and the genius who counsels all failures. If you believe the gospel this morning, and I believe the gospel this morning, then it is incumbent that the culture of our church be a place where we say, we're going to love you. We're going to love you and you and you and, yeah, even you, Roger. If Ian was here, I would have pointed to Ian. But, but this is, the gospel says to me, God, how could you love me? Because I know me. How do you even put up with me? But he loves me. Therefore, I should love other people. That's the church. We become a place of undeserving, where undeserving love is shown. Second, we become a place where our lives, or we live unselfish lives. Distasteful eagles destroy, eagle, not eagles, egos destroy the church. When we think we're something in the church, don't you know who I am? Yeah, you're a sinner saved by grace. You're one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. But when that ego pops up in our churches, it causes real trouble. Listen to the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Now listen to what he says there. Paul was a genius. I'm not kidding you. He wrote at least half, probably half the New Testament. He was a brilliant theologian. He was a Jew of Jews. He was from the house and the line of Saul. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He knew the law. He was brilliant. If anyone could boast, it would have been Paul. And what Paul says when he comes to Christ is this. All of those accomplishments, all of who I was and what identified me in the past, they mean nothing to me now because Christ is all in all. Now watch this. Listen how he describes the things that would have caused him to be full of pride. He says, uh, the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I might win Christ. I don't know what your Bible says there. Mine says dung, Old King James language, right? Yours probably says maybe filth or refuse, right? Do we have to go any further there? Kim says no. Okay, I'll stop there. No one admires their dung. I know it's crude, but Paul said it. Talk to Paul. Kim, talk to Paul. I can't, right? Paul said it. What happens when I understand the gospel is it's no longer about me in the church building, about my pride. When the whole church delights in Christ alone, it becomes a surprising new kind of community where sinners and sufferers come alive because the Lord is there giving himself freely to those who are desperate. I don't have to pretend anymore. I don't have to put on a facade anymore. Don't have to come and act like everything's okay. No, no. The ego is gone. Why? Because Christ died for me and he is the only thing that matters. 
So we become a community of unselfish lives. Thirdly, we become unmoved, unmoved by our letdowns. It's an amazing thing. When the church is gospel-centered, it, it, it has this idea that we become a community of cheerful defiance. We become cheerful even toward our disappointments that we endure in this broken world. Life is not easy. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is painful. But for those of us who know the gospel, we know why it is so. And we also know that the one who saved us is making all things new. Just like a baby crying. New. It's new. That's my baby crying. Right? And Sue and Henry's. I'm sorry. It's all of them. Right? Um, but we can be defiant in the face of the brokenness of our world because um, we know the end. And we can be cheerfully defiant toward our own sins and failures. I don't have to beat myself up anymore and live under that guilt. You and I are not designed to live under guilt. It kills us. And what the gospel says is, listen, I can have this cheerful defiance, not that I'm perfect, but there's forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. He knows my frame. He remembers I'm dust. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that love him. I have freedom in that. It's a beautiful thing, and I can be defiant even when I fail, even when I blow it. Why? Because he's faithful. Not me. He's faithful and just. If I confess my sin, he'll forgive me of my sin. And finally, a gospel-centered church is one that takes on the unfailing likeness of Jesus Christ. Andrew read this morning, 2 Peter 1, 5-9. I won't read the whole text. I'll just finish with these words, he, he's telling us to add to our lives, right? Kindness, virtue, patience, love. And then he says this. Add those things, for if, verse 8, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you are neither unbarren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Peter says, the reason we don't look like Christ, the reason we've not grown the way we should grow is because we've forgotten something. And what does Peter say you forgot? You forgot that you were purged from your old sins. You forgot that he redeemed you. You forgot that he bought you. You forgot his purpose for your life to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And when the church is gospel-centered, well, that's always in our face, what happens is we start adding love. Patience, all of it, it's added. We become more like Christ. This is a healthy church. It must be gospel-centered. This is ground zero. This is where we live out our faith. And the gospel must be central. We pay a price to give our lives to, to a real community. It, there is a price to pay. We lose space, we lose time, we lose freedom to do whatever we want to do. But this is a church of Jesus Christ. And a healthy church that expounds the word of God and has the gospel at the center is a church that shouts the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, is our purpose. That's what we're created for. And by God's grace, we will do that. Let's pray this morning.